This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And, of course, we tell your stories, too. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and share them with us. We'll hopefully share them right back to the American people. And our This Day in History today, as always, brought to us by our friends at Hillsdale College, the best place to study all of the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And more than a half century after Mary Poppins premiered on this day in history in 1964, it is still one of the most beloved films ever. Here's Greg Hengler with the story. You may have seen the 2013 period drama Saving Mr. Banks, starring Emma Thompson and Tom Hanks as filmmaker Walt Disney, who attempts to obtain the screen rights to P.L. Travers' Mary Poppins novels. Whether you've seen the movie or not, we thought we'd kick it up a notch and hear from the people who were actually there. Now, let's begin with television and screen legend Dick Van Dyke. I think all would agree that Mary Poppins truly is Walt Disney's crowning glory. Like Mary Poppins herself, the film is practically perfect in every way. The perfect creative team, perfect songwriters, the perfect cast, and the perfect person to put it all together. Walt Disney. But getting started wasn't that easy. Here's Disney animator Andreas Dejas and P.L. Travers biographer Valerie Lawson. I remember him being interviewed for it and he said that his daughter Diane had read the books and she actually was the one who said, Dad, maybe there is something for you here. And he loved the books too. So it was something very personal to him from the start. P.L. Travers' Mary Poppins was published in 1934 in London, but it wasn't until about four years afterwards, in 1938, that Walt Disney went after the rights. Mrs. Travers, however, wasn't too keen. Allegedly, she said she'd seen other books that had been turned into movies and she didn't like the way they'd been treated by Hollywood, but Walt never, ever gave up on a good idea. And in 1944, he tried again. Walt sent his brother to try and convince Pamela, who was in New York, that she would release the rights to him. But she wouldn't. Now, over the next few years, there are several offers made and as many refusals. And these these conversations they had are all recorded. Now we come to my notes here, my typewritten notes. And this is what I want to make very clear. The book should be read very carefully for atmosphere. It is integral to the book and to the story that Mary Poppins should never be impolite to anybody. You brought your references, I presume. May I see them? Oh, I make it a point never to give references. A very old-fashioned idea, to my mind. Is that so? Here's song composer and lyricist for Mary Poppins, Richard Sherman, and film historian Brian Sibley. No, 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 no. No, no, don't make it like that. There were so many hesitations in, in her acceptance of the idea that the father and mother change and become warmer and more loving. She said, not a change of heart, because he's always been sweet, but worried with the cares of life. I think she had 30 days to consider. On the 30th day, she relented, but she had to be the consultant. It seems unbelievable after all that had gone on, but almost 20 years from the point when Walt Disney had set out on this quest, Mrs. Travers agrees on certain conditions that the film might be made. We were considering a number of people to play the part of Mary Poppins. We had uh, 
of Mary Martin, and we're thinking of Betty Davis, and then we were also thinking of Angela Lansbury. But uh, it wasn't until one evening when the Ed Sullivan Show had an excerpt from Camelot, and a young woman named Julie Andrews and Richard Burton sang, What Do the Simple Folk Do? And I called my brother. I said, Bob, oh my God, she's absolutely perfect. Next day we walked into DeGrati's office and Don DeGrati says, did you see the Ed Sullivan show last night? I mean, it was just wow. So we walked down the hall, the three of us, to, we want to see Walt. Here's Tony Walton, Mary Poppins' costume and set designer, and his then wife, Mary Poppins herself, Julie Andrews. P.L. Travers had approval pretty much of everything in her contract, so Walt said that Julie would need to be auditioned or passed by the author of the stories. I met her very briefly in London. She, I think, was fond of me and and approved of my doing Poppins. Uh, I know she said that I had the nose for it. As I expected, Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. She was quite happy with Julie Andrews, though. She was more than happy. She loved her performance. Roomy for everyone, gather around. The constable is responsible. Now, how does that sound? Walt Disney was reading in a newspaper an article about what people thought about the cinema today, and he came across a comment by Dick Van Dyke which said that he personally did not like the way in which modern-day movies were trending towards, as he put it, dirty pictures. Now, this was something that Walt himself felt very, very strongly about, and he thought, oh, this man's a man after my own heart. So he had a look at some of Dick's work, and he asked Dick to come over to the studio. They met. Instantly, they liked one another, and almost instantly, Walt was offering him the part to play Bert. Can't put me finger on what lies in store. I feel what's to happen. All happened before. I'd only been in one movie myself. So I was about as green as anything. And uh, Julie, despite the fact it was her first film, was perfectly professional. She had a camera personality. She knew where the camera was. She knew where the lights were, as if she had done it all her life. She was thoroughly professional from the beginning. Of all the wonderful things that Walt was coming up with for this movie, one of the greatest moments in my songwriting career was we had finished this song, Jolly Holiday, and we were playing it for the first time for Walt, and Don DeGrati had developed a bunch of beautiful sketches for this thing. And there's a section in the song where four waiters were going to come out, and Walt said, hold it. And he said, Waiters have always reminded me of penguins. So they made them penguins. That would have never occurred to any human being except Walt Disney. He had this wonderful, whimsical way about him. Walt said, as a matter of fact, we'll animate everything in that sequence except for the principal characters. You know, we can do that. We have this sodium vapor process that Ub Iwerks has created. When Mary holds your hand, you feel so grand. It was a high point of my life when I saw that finally put together with the real animation in there. What a masterful job it was. Walt took all of his little bag of tricks that he developed over 35 years and put, put them into this picture. And when we come back, more of our Mary Poppins story or this day in history story after these messages. Have you ever seen the 
This is Our American Stories, and we return to the story of Mary Poppins. And let's pick up where we last left off. Here's Karen Dutrice, who played the young Jane Banks. I think the one thing that comes off with Disney movies of the old days, and especially Walt himself, was his love of innocence. And I think that's what Walt revered in We Children, and that's what he wanted to send us away with still. And he succeeded. Ellen, we had the most glorious meeting. When we were casting the film, Walt immediately said, I know the perfect person to play the mother, and that is Glynis Johns. She's just absolutely right. And we all agreed, she's absolutely perfect. Gracious, Kate and Anna, you're not leaving. What will Mr. Banks say? He's going to be cross enough as it is to come home and find the children missing. Here's Glennis Johns, who played Mrs. Winifred Banks. I said to Walt, it might give me an incentive if I could have my own little number. Walt reached over and said, but Glennis, the boys are just finishing a great number for you. You're going to love it. Wait till you hear it. So he says, all right, all right. I'll have to hear it, and if, 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 I, if I like it, then I might, I might consider doing the part. So she left. Walt said, get on this thing. you, know, you got to write something for her. But we had this song that we had written called Practically Perfect. So we said, hmm, that could be a suffragette song. By the time I got back to the Chateau Marmont, the telephone was ringing, and it was Walt. He said, listen to this. I heard the first few bars of Sister Suffragette. Clearly soldiers in petty coats and dauntless crusaders for women's votes. Though we adore men individually, we agree that as a group they're rather stupid. Glynis was interested then. When I think now of how nearly I didn't do it, it's amazing because I'm so proud to be part of it. It was the only time I've ever been working on a project where at the end of each day, I walked away saying, this is so good. I knew from the very beginning, after every day shooting, how good that movie was going to be. Our songwriters, Dick and Bob Sherman. We asked Walt if we could have half an hour of his time, and uh, we played a few song ideas we had. He was very impressed with what we were coming up with. And uh, at the end of this meeting, uh, he said, play me that, uh, that bird woman song again. Come feed the little birds, show them you care. It was about charity, and about giving somebody something that they didn't ask for, but that they could use love. Please, may we feed the birds? Waste your money on a lot of ragamuffin birds? Certainly not. The birds toppins a bag. Walt, from the time he heard it, just loved that song. Never said it to us, but he would, like a Friday afternoon, he'd call us up and say, come over, and 5.30, 6 o'clock, we'd come over to his office, and he'd say, play it. <laughs> and I'd play Feed the Birds and sing it for him. Feed the birds toppins a bag. And he'd... Yep, that's what it's all about. Have a good weekend, boys, and then he'd send us home. He loved that song. It was his favorite. Here's Richard Sherman, Julie Andrews, and Dick Van Dyke. 
And Walt Disney gave that tuppence a bag with the lady who played the bird woman. Her name was Jane. Uh, Jane Darwell. And what happened was Walt said, I know the perfect person to play this part. If she'll do it, she's, she's old and frail, oh. but I want her to do it. And Walt... Was that was, the last thing she ever did? Yes, it was. And, mm. and uh, she died soon after she did it. But oh. they sent a, a special car for her. They treated her like a star. Walt came down to the soundstage oh. to, to see her. She was so yeah. thrilled and happy. She cried because she said Walt Disney was so kind to her. That was giving that... Tuppence. Tuppence of bag. It's supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. The musical style was really boiled beef and carrots. It's boiled beef and carrots, an old English uh, folk song. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. And, and any old iron, any old iron. It's uh, silly little songs that they wrote in those years, and uh, we wanted to feel like that, and yet be original and, and totally our own. When the film was released, audience response was overwhelming, and it became an instant phenomenon. It was the biggest hit in the history of the studio. Mary Poppins had worked her magic on the world. Mary Poppins premiered on August 1964 at Grauman's Chinese Cinema on Hollywood Boulevard. They tell me this could be one of your biggest pictures, Mr. Disney. Well, we... I haven't retired yet. I'm so nervous I'm about to die. It's such an exciting night. This is the night of all. The red carpet, we had the big tent out. Yeah, yeah. And we had a big garden party built out on the, on on the, the back, rock yes. the back. And the reaction was wonderful. <laughs> what an ovation I got at the end. The reviews were fantastic. I never read reviews like that. They were all glowing, th thrilling reviews. It was a remarkable success, a very, very big popular success. Which, I mean, that, that is the greatest thing I think anybody could have, is seeing people enjoying and laughing and crying to your work. It's just the one, most wonderful thing in the world. For the best actress in a musical or comedy, the nominees are... At the Golden Globe Awards in February 1965, Julie Andrews was nominated for Mary Poppins, opposite Audrey Hepburn for My Fair Lady. And suddenly, I don't know how it came about, maybe Bill Walsh brought it up, but we suddenly realized that if, if Jack Warner had asked me to do My Fair Lady, which I missed out on, I would never have been able to do Mary Poppins. The winner is Julie Andrews, Mary Poppins. Thank you very much for this lovely honor. It's a wonderful memento of a very, very happy time. And. I took an enormous gulp and said, Finally, my thanks to a man who made a wonderful movie and who made all this possible in the first place, Mr. Jack Warner. Everybody screamed. It was like a thunderous scream, and everybody's laughing, including Mr. Warner, so I was home and safe. And that was her little sweet revenge, I think. It was great. Congratulations. Thank you very much. When a few weeks later, the Academy Award nominations were announced, Mary Poppins received an amazing 13 nomination. Among the nominations include Best Picture, Director, Actress, Screenplay, Cinematography, Art Direction, Visual Effects, Original Song, and Score. They're probably hard words to describe your emotion. Now, 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 gentlemen, please. On the contrary, there's a very good word. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. <laughs> the magic of it had escaped me, pounding it out every day. When it was all put together, there was. It, there was something else besides what we put into it. 
I don't know what serendipity came along, but there was a wonderful magic aura about that movie that nobody expected. And it's just as I say, every time I see the film, I think it's better and better. And now each generation is going to enjoy it in a different way. Tom the Kite needs a proper tale, don't you think? It was such a contribution to family entertainment. And I, I know that it's going to be around for a, for a long time. It, it stands as the perfect Walt Disney movie, as far as I'm concerned. I had the pleasure, the honor, really, of, of being asked to, to uh, help dedicate the Walt Disney statue at Disneyland. It was his 100th birthday, and so I was, they have to do that, and they said, would you play a couple of songs? And I said, okay. And I played a couple of things, and then I said, I'm now going to play Walt Disney's favorite song, and it's just for him. And I sang and played Feed the Birds, Tuppence the Bag. I finished my song, and I blew a kiss to Walt, statue like that, I said, Happy birthday, Walt. And I got down. And they told me afterwards, just toward the end, out of the clear blue sky, one bird flew down right over where I was playing and off again into the clouds. Well, that moves me very much. That was Walt saying thanks. I'm Greg Hingler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always, by Greg Hengler. And folks, if you want to hear more of what we do, and we try to do it all here, and we always try to keep it positive, because in this day and age, well, you can't get enough of it. I know you can't. We can't either. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Sign up for our free newsletter. We'll send you our five best stories each week in print and audio form. That's ouramericannetwork.org. This is Our American Stories, and what you're about to hear, well, it might be disturbing to those of you listening who are sensitive to stories about animal abuse. But in this dark corner of American history, our producer Jesse Edwards brings us the story of an elephant who was killed by an angry mob. Marching into a big top to the sound of a drunken four-piece band, the elephants in Charlie Sparks' traveling circus did their best to entertain the audience on that cold afternoon of February 1916. They sat on their haunches, stood on their heads, and performed an elephant train as they placed their forelegs on each other's backs and trumpeted around the ring. In short, they performed every trick they had known, but they could not make up for the absence of the real star of the show, a five-ton Asian elephant named Mary. 
Mary's talents included picking out 25 tunes on musical horns, which she tooted out with her trunk. She was also the champion pitcher on the circus's baseball team. But on that tragic day, she had been stripped of her red and gold saddle and dress of artificial blue feathers and stood tethered in disgrace outside the tent. Waiting there, in the drizzling rain, it was said that she trembled fearfully, as if aware of the awful fate about to befall her. And well she might have done, for murderous Mary, as she became known, had not only killed a man, but had made the mistake of doing so near Irwin, Tennessee. This newly booming American railroad town had its own post office, theater, and courthouse. It also had a jail, but the sheriff's authority counted for little in a part of the world where mob rule still prevailed. Her fate was sealed the day before the hanging, when Charlie Sparks' circus train arrived in the small town of Kingsport, about 40 miles from Irwin. As always, it advertised its presence with a parade along the main street, during which Mary was ridden by 38-year-old Walter Eldridge, nicknamed Red because of his red, rusty-colored hair. He was a drifter who had been with the circus only one day. He had no experience of handling elephants, but the only qualification required was the ability to wield an elephant stick, a rod with a sharp spear at one end. While the elephant stick usually kept Mary in line, she was suffering from a painfully abscessed tooth that day. When she stopped during the parade to nibble on a piece of discarded watermelon rind, Red Eldridge jabbed her to keep her moving and inadvertently hit the tender spot. Her reaction was swift and deadly. Reaching up with her trunk, she slammed him to the ground and then stepped on his head. Blood and brains and stuff just squirted all over the street, recalled one witness. As the terrified spectators screamed and fled, a local blacksmith shot Mary with a pistol, unloading five rounds of ammunition into her thick hide to little effect. She stood still, suddenly calm again and seemingly oblivious to both the bullets and the commotion as the townsfolk encircled her with chance of kill the elephant, kill the elephant. Fearing that his dates in other towns would be canceled if they heard that his circus was home to a homicidal pachyderm, Charlie Sparks had no choice but to give in to these demands for vengeance. The only question was how Mary would meet her end. Bullets had already proved ineffective, and neither was poison likely to work. Some people advocated crushing Mary slowly between two opposing railway engines. Others called for her head to be tied to one locomotive and her legs to another so that she would be dismembered alive as they set off in opposite directions. Another option was electrocution. There was a horrific precedent for this thanks to Thomas Edison, inventor of the first commercially viable electric light bulb. At a time when America was choosing which of the two main forms of electricity to adopt, direct current or alternating current, he had patents for many devices using the former and stood to profit hugely if it was chosen over its rival. Claiming that DC was the safer of the two, Edison spread false stories about fatal accidents supposedly involving AC. He also staged various demonstrations in which animals were publicly electrocuted with AC, the most spectacular of which came about in 1903 when a new amusement park opened in New York's Coney Island. One of the attractions was an elephant named Topsy, but it was claimed that she had become violent and uncooperative and the owners sought publicity for their new venture by executing her with Edison's help. A huge crowd saw Topsy place her feet obediently into specially designed wooden sandals lined with copper wiring and linked to an AC power supply. When the switch was thrown, smoke billowed up from her feet, and within a few minutes, it was all over. One newspaper reported the public's morbid delight in watching her demise. 
even though it caused an unpleasant smell to mingle with the scent of roasted peanuts sold at two cents a bag. But her death proved in vain, because Edison's plot failed, and America eventually went with AC as its standard electricity current. This had reached rural Tennessee by 1916, but not with sufficient power to kill an elephant. So, Charlie Sparks came up with the equally sensational idea of hanging Mary. The next day, the circus visited Irwin, Tennessee, which had a 100-ton crane used to lift railway carriages on and off the tracks. This was strong enough to support an elephant, and the matinee-goers, disappointed by not seeing Mary in the ring that afternoon, were relieved by the news that they could see her being hanged shortly afterwards at no additional charge. As she was led away to the railway yard, the other four elephants followed Mary, each entwining their trunk and the tail of the animal in front, just as they had done in countless parades. Charlie Sparks hoped that the presence of the other elephants would keep Mary complacent, but as a chain was placed around her neck at the gallows, they trumpeted mournfully to her. And he feared that she might try to run away. To stop this from happening, one of her legs was tethered to a rail, but nobody thought to release it as the crane whirred into action and she was hoisted into the air. There was an awful cracking noise. The sound of her bones and ligaments snapping under the strain. She had been raised no more than five feet when the chain around her neck broke, dropping her to the ground and breaking her hip. Children in the crowd panicked and ran for cover, but Mary simply sat dazed and in terrible pain. Meanwhile, one of the circus hands ran up her back, as if climbing a hill rather than a living creature, and attached a stronger chain. The winch was powered up again, and this time Mary was raised high into the air, her thick legs thrashing and agonized shrieks and grunts audible, even over the laughter and cheers of those watching below. Finally, she fell silent and hung there for a half hour before a local vet declared her dead. Her gruesome end is recorded in a photograph so horrifically surreal that some have suggested it must be a fake. But, all too sadly, its authenticity has been confirmed by other photographs taken at the time. That night, the circus went ahead as usual. But after the show, one of the remaining elephants broke away from the herd and began running towards the railway yard. Since wild elephants are thought to return to the bones of fallen family members for many years, he perhaps went in search for Mary. But he was quickly recaptured and returned to the life of captive misery from which he had escaped. Knowing that Mary no longer had to endure this cruel and unnatural existence is perhaps the only consolation to be drawn from this awful tale. Today... She still lies buried in a huge grave which was dug for her using a steam shovel. Some said the hole was as big as a barn, but no one knows exactly where it is, or seems much inclined to find it. There remains no monument to Mary the Elephant in Irwin, Tennessee, the town which hanged an elephant and apparently remains ashamed of having done so to this very day. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job as always, Jesse. And we bring you every kind of story here on Our American Stories. Murderous Marys. Never heard it. It makes an amazing movie, I think. Very cinematic. Big themes. 
And to hear more of our material, go to ouramericannetwork.org and hear stories about every walk of life from American history to the arts to sports and to stories like these, stories you'd never heard of and stories that will surely move you. Sometimes they'll make you laugh. Sometimes we'll make you cry. Sometimes we'll just get you sick to your stomach and just wonder, wow, how could man be so cruel? And we were moved in just that way by Jesse's piece. More after these messages. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for one of our favorite recurring segments, Life Lessons from Dr. Bob. Dr. Robert Shillman doesn't go by his formal name. I didn't want to be called Dr. Shillman. It's, it sounded to me too pretentious. So he goes by just Dr. Bob. I have a, uh, a sort of comedic streak about me. An unusual name to call someone. But Dr. Bob isn't your ordinary guy. I'd like to do things in a funny, different way. A memorable way. With only $86,000, he started this little company called Cognex that became the worldwide leader in machine vision systems. On the arm of the robot is mounted a Cognex vision system, which looks out at the world and says that's where the windshields are, this is the one on top, and this is where you should pick it up. And after 36 years of cultivating a unique culture with over 1,400 employees, Dr. Bob's decided to share the life lessons that he's learned along the way. And today's lesson is titled, Why Make It Hard? Managing people can be very complex or rather easy. It all depends on the kind of people you hire. We try to hire people who happen to want to do exactly what we need them to do. So those kind of people don't need a lot of management. We give them the freedom to do what they want to do, whether it's creating new machine vision software or whether it's uh, packaging and, and fulfilling customer orders. We find people who actually have a passion for doing what we want them to do. And therefore, we just have to tell them how much of it to do and we leave them alone. So my view on management is that manager's responsibility is to clear the decks Clear the desk of all of your people from the stuff that is bothering them, whether it's medical issues or home issues. And we try to help them solve all those issues so they can come to work as a place to escape from the rest of the world. They can escape from their day-to-day problems and just do what they want to do. And that's very true in engineering. We have, I have a senior vice president of the company who's been with me many years, and he says, Dr. Bob, I would pay you to do what I'm doing here. 
here. It's, it's that enjoyable. This is exactly what I want to do. Thank you for creating the environment and thank you for paying me and giving me stock options to do what I want to do. And what a breath of fresh air. If you're managing people, listen to Dr. Bob. Take his advice. I know it sounds counterintuitive and different than everything you've heard from anybody in the motivational business. But Dr. Bob's got words of wisdom. Follow him. And we have much more to come from Dr. Bob. And now we turn to our two of our favorite subjects, history, and this day in history, which we do so much of with Hillsdale College, and, of course, music. And that leads us to our favorite recurring segment as well, This Week in Music History with Jesse. 1967, the Turtles start a three-week run at number one on the U.S. Singles Chart with Happy Together. Imagine me and you, I do. I think about you day and night. It's only right to think about the girl you love and hold her tight. So happy together. If I should call you up, invest a dime, and you say you belong to me, and ease my mind. Imagine how the world could be so very fine, so happy together. And in 1969, Marvin Gaye was number one on the UK singles chart with I Heard It Through the Grapevine. The song was first recorded by The Miracles and also had a million copies sold in 1967 for Gladys Knight and the Pips. It's the longest-running Motown number one hit in the States where it hit the top 100 chart for seven weeks. It was Gaye's first number one hit, and it made him a star. And in 1990, Motley Crue's Tommy Lee was arrested for mooning the audience at a gig in Augusta. He was charged with indecent exposure. And in 2013, Justin Bieber ran into some trouble at the Munich airport when customs officials detained and quarantined his monkey due to a lack of documentation required to bring said monkey into Germany. Bieber went on to perform in Munich while the monkey was kept in the custody of authorities. And born this week in music history, 1937, American jazz musician Herb Alpert. Most associated with the group Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass, Alpert was the A in A&M Records with Jerry Moss that first opened from a garage in his home. Alpert and Moss sold A&M in 1987 to Polygram Records, $500 million. Also born this week in music history, 1942, American singer-songwriter Aretha Franklin, the Queen of Soul, who had the 1967 U.S. number one and U.K. number ten single, Respect, plus over 15 other top 40 hits.
another born this week in music history, this time 1948, Steven Tyler, the one and only frontman and lead singer for Aerosmith, nominated for many awards throughout his career, but maybe one of the few artists in classic rock who have been nominated for a Grammy, an Oscar, and an Emmy Award. There was a time when I was so broken hearted, love wasn't much of a friend of mine. Tables have turned, yeah, and calls me in and where's that party? That kind of love was the killing kind. So listen. In 1972, Elvis Presley recorded what would be his last major hit, Burning Love. Final born this week in music history, this time in 1962, American hip-hop artist MC Hammer. He had the 1990 U.S. number one album with Hammer, Please Don't Hurt Him. It spent a record 21 weeks at the top of the charts. That's this week told you, homeboy. in music history. Yeah, that's how we living and you know. This is our American story. Look at my eyes, man. You can't touch this. Yo, let me bust the funky lyrics. Fresh new kicks and pants. You got it like that. Now you know you want to dance. So move out of your seat and get a five girl and catch this beat while it's rolling. Hold on. Pump a little bit and let them know what's going on like that. Like that. Why you standing there, man? You can't touch this. Why you standing there, man? You can't touch this. Why you standing there, man? You can't touch this. Why you standing there, man? You can't touch this. Why you standing there, man? You can't touch this. Why you standing there, man? You can't touch this. Why you stand
can't touch this. Yo, sound the bell, school is in, sucker. Can't touch this. Give me a song, a rhythm, making them sweat. That's what I'm giving them now. They know, you talk about the hammer, you're talking about a show that's hot and tight. Singles are sweating so fast, I'm a white or a tape. This is Our American Stories, and it's time for one of our favorite segments. We love music here on the show, and it's the story of a song, and we've done a bunch of great ones. Jesus Takes the Wheel, There Goes My Life, Another Brick in the Wall, Give Me Shelter, on and on. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and listen to all of them when you're taking a long ride. You'll love it. A lot of it from the songwriters themselves. Light My Fire, The Exegesis by Ray Manzarek, the keyboard player. It's just amazing. There are songs that sound like they've been around forever. Songs that were not written as much as transcribed. Transcribed for the ages. The song we're about to talk about, well, it's one of those songs. It's by country legend Vince Gill. And it's Go Rest High on That Mountain. For the longest time, I just thought it was part of the American songbook. One of those songs that was always just there, like House of the Rising Sun. One of the songs that when you go to find who wrote it, well, it had no author. I want to play a clip because when we're telling the story of the song, we like to hear from the writer himself and the source of the inspiration of this song that felt like it's been around forever. Here's Vince Gill talking about it. I've had bigger hits and songs that have sold more and, and all of those, uh, all those things, but that will be the one song, hands down, that, that will that will identify me, and I couldn't be prouder. You know, if that were to wind up in a hymnal someday, it would yeah. just be the sweetest thing yeah. in the world, you know, that something I did later in life was would correlate with the very first thing that I ever heard was something out of a hymnal. And I, I know that song is, is powerful. Um, I, I did, it, it had no intention of being any of that. Yeah. You know, all it was intended for was for me to grieve my brother's death and honor him and, and, and celebrate what I thought was in store for him and and what really didn't even plan to record it. And Tony Brown said, you have to record this song. I said, well, okay, if you want to. And and, and then they told me they were going to put it out as a single. And I said, well, you guys have lost your minds. <laughs> and I couldn't have been more wrong. But um, I, I, I really could not be prouder that that I was lucky enough to, to, to strike a chord with people that, that they want to go to that song um, in their gravest times and in their most painful and hurtful and, and sad times that they go to that song to find comfort. Maya Angelou um, got in touch with me and told me that that song um, was an amazing um, healing process for her when she lost her brother. Sure. I feel pretty blessed and lucky and all those things to, to have gotten to write that one. And we're all blessed and lucky he did. And, you know, it was interesting as we were listening to that clip, Greg Hengler pointed out to us that he doesn't just wait for folks to die to celebrate this song and to listen to this song. In fact, he listens to it every week, he told us. And then in the end, it inspires him as it relates to how to live. There was one particular lyric I'm going to quote to you, and then we're going to play the song in its entirety, as we always do 
with the story of the song, and it's the chorus. Go rest high on that mountain, son, when your work on earth is done. Go to heaven a-shoutin', love for the Father and the Son. And with that, for both folks who listen to it uh, when people have died, and for folks like Greg who listen to it to inspire them, let's take a listen to Vince Gill's song. I know your life on earth was troubled. Only you could know the pain. You weren't afraid to face the devil. You were no stranger. And you're listening, by the way, to Ricky Skaggs and Patty Loveless. Gil's older brother Bob died of a heart attack in 1993. This song won Vince Gill CMA Song of the Year Award in 1996 and two Grammys. This is Our American Stories, the story of a song.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, Roman Holiday was released in 1953. And all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, the best place in America to study all the finest things in life, all the beautiful things in life, all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will get to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And Faith brings us the story of Audrey Hepburn and the making of this 1950s classic. Stunning. A beauty icon. Charming. Delightful. One could say enrapturing. Yet, her large sad brown eyes tell us another story. A story that the Hollywood glitz and glam failed to tell. Audrey Hepburn. If you don't know the name, surely you have seen the face. With her show-stopping smile, she starred in films such as Roman Holiday, Breakfast at Tiffany's, Charade, and of course, My Fair Lady, among many others. But before she was widely known for her acting, Audrey Hepburn was not born with a silver spoon in her mouth. She was a child of World War II. Born in Brussels, Belgium on May 4, 1929, Audrey did not grow up acting. In fact, she grew up dancing. Then the war began and Audrey experienced what the Dutch referred to as their hunger winter, which occurred in the winter of 1944 to 1945. A German blockade cut off food and fuel shipments from farm areas. As many as 22,000 people died. So for Audrey, adolescence had been overshadowed by the struggle for survival and she faced severe malnutrition something that would affect her health for the rest of her life. However, while the war was difficult, her father abandoning her family had perhaps an even larger impact. With his leaving, she now carried a large burden of insecurities that many could see. During World War II, she delivered hidden messages for their resistance, which she would store in her ballet shoes. When the war ended, emergency food packages were brought in abundance. The packages arrived from the United Nations Relief Fund, the forerunner of UNICEF, which would play a large role in her life later on. In 1948, sadly, the war had destroyed their hometown in Holland, so Audrey and her mother moved to London. Audrey started studying on a ballet scholarship. However, at 5'7", she was too tall to achieve the status of prima ballerina so she began pursuing a different type of performance. Here's Audrey speaking of her acting career. By chance, fall into a period in movie making when these directors were around and wanted me. And that has been a sort of miracle of my career because I haven't made that many pictures. But they were all, one after the other, four great directors with great actors. I was not an actress when I came to movies, I was a dancer. So I had no experience. I had experience in working, working hard, ballet is hard, discipline. Those were the things I could contribute. I wasn't a tearing beauty. I didn't have a, any way for them to know of whether I could really act. But in Willie's sensitivity, in Billy's sensitivity, they realized there was enough there for them as a human being to draw out. 
And that has been my limitations also. I've never been able to declaim Shakespeare or do those kind of things. What I'm really trying to say is I never really became an actress. I never did the repertoire in the theater or the whole gamut in movies. It was a sort of miraculous period in my life when I was in the hands of these people. And I was born with something that appealed to an audience at that particular time. And it, that's why it, it's, it never ceases to puzzle and yet also to to dazzle me in a way that I, I mean I never really became an actress mm. in the sense that yes I went from one picture to the other from one director to the other from one actor to the other I just walked on the set knowing my lines and took it from there the famous director William Wyler came to England looking for just such a young actress as her he came to England looking for an unknown to do the picture, which in fact was my only qualification for that picture. I was working in musicals. I just acquired an agent, or rather the agent acquired me, <laughs> and I was doing little bits for television and in movies to, to, to earn an extra pound or two, or a shilling in those days went a long way. And um, he really ordered a lot of tests made, and I was one of them he did ask to see me he met with me just a few minutes just to sort of check me out had me come to the hotel i think he was staying at claridge's in those days and uh, and then he left town but he left me in the hands of a marvelous english director called Thorold dickinson when he directed this test he was fully aware of the fact that i was petrified and didn't know how to go about the test or anything and what he did do, which was very good and very clever and very fortunate for me, is once I'd played my scene, which I did very badly and all of that, he just had me sit talking to, he was next to the camera, and asked me questions about me or whatever I liked and disliked. And, and um, I sort of forgot about the camera and talked with Thorold. And that's the test that eventually uh, won me the part and started, you know, a lovely career for me. The part that she would play would be in the 1953 film Roman Holiday, a story of a runaway princess who falls in love with an American newsman, played by Gregory Peck. This was the role of a lifetime, one that would skyrocket her career. Audrey shares her thoughts on the filming of Roman Holiday. Well, I had no sense period <laughs> in those days I, I was awfully new and awfully young and doing my very f- first big movie thrilled to be doing it but I was not even aware enough yet then of the significance of doing a picture for William Wyler who William Wyler really was I mean I caught on very quickly I was very new to everything I mean only sort of it was only four years before that come out of Holland and along German occupation, all of that, where we hadn't been able to keep up at all with with pictures, and I was way behind, and there's so much I wasn't aware of, you know, so let alone think of me or future, or I I didn't know it was going to lead even to another movie. Being that this was her first major film, Audrey had some things to learn. Here is the scene that she struggled with the most, as the princess is saying goodbye 
to the man whom she's fallen in love with. I have to leave you now. I'm going to that corner there and turn. You must stay in the car and drive away. Promise not to watch me go beyond the corner. Just drive away and leave me as I leave you. say goodbye. I think of any words. Don't try. And here she talks about how she mustered the tears to film that final scene in Roman Holiday. The last scene in effect in the picture was in fact the last scene we were shooting. It was done mm-hmm. in sequence for once. And if you remember, Greg and I have to say goodbye in the car. And that's it. We have to separate. And clearly, I was supposed to cry. And it was late at night, and I was tired, and I played the scene very nicely and everything, but tears didn't come, and I didn't know how to make them come. I hadn't ever tried or learned, unless they came perfectly natural, and nothing was happening. And Willie Weiler came over to our little car and gave me now he'd always been so adorable and very gentle to me and as I said, always bringing out the best in me and everything. He really let me have it and I burst into tears and he shot the scene. And when we come back, more on the story, behind the story of Roman Holiday and, of course, Audrey Hepburn. Their stories here on Our American Stories are this day in history, as always, brought to us by Hillsdale College. to our American stories and the life story of Audrey Hepburn. We're celebrating her story on the day of Roman Holiday's release on this day in history in 1953. Back to you, Faith. After this film, she was an overnight star. She had the opportunity to work with many wonderful directors and strong male leads. And in 1957, Audrey played Joe Stockton in Funny Face with co-star Fred Astaire, famous actor and dancer. Though she was beyond beautiful and charming, Audrey was a young woman with many insecurities. However, here she recounts the time that she first met Fred. I was never going to be a great dancer. I was too tall. I didn't have the training that I should have had when I was younger because of the war and so forth. But I might have gone on hoofing because I had to earn a living for some years more. 
I do remember the first time I met Fred Astaire and that was on the set. <gasps> Can you imagine? I mean, I, I had a very sort of uh, slim kind of, slender kind of technique. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't a great technician at all. And uh, to be, you know, uh, cast opposite him was, was terribly exciting, but I was very apprehensive. You see, the minute I walked on the set, for the rehearsal, and we just had one working light and a piano player. He was so dear, and knew full well, I imagine, being a sensitive man, how I felt. But he was fun, made me relax, and before you knew it, there was some music going, and he said, let's try a few steps, and you know, off we went. I can say, I think I, I became very good friends with, with, with Fred, and I adored him. And I was never, ever scared of him after that first hour. And of course, her role in Breakfast at Tiffany's as Holly Golightly showed her diversity in acting. But needless to say, there was some controversy over this role, considering that Holly Golightly is a call girl. I think for one thing, I don't think Truman Capote thought I was right for the part. And uh, I don't know, I think sort of some people thought that you know, it was a different era that it was a bit daring to play a call girl. The scene with the cat, because I'm a, I'm a, I'm putty about animals. I have four dogs now, but I've had, I've had everything in my life, and it was awfully tough to throw that lovely marmalade cat into the rain. And in fact, it didn't want to get out of the cab, and I had to push it out and shout at it and everything. But fortunately, I have the scene at the very end when I can go find it and hug it. And and it was in Breakfast at Tiffany's where she sang the song Moon River. The head of the studio originally wanted to get rid of the song, but Audrey was there and told the head, Over My Dead Body. Lucky for them, because the song went on to win an Academy Award for Best Original Song in career continued to diversify when she played Susie Hendricks in the film Wait Until Dark in 1967. This was a psychological horror thriller, 
It is in this film that she plays a blind woman. And while Audrey always claimed that she never became a true actress, she explains how she played this role. She explains how she learned to play this role. That was a part that I was, you know, very happy to, 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 uh, to be given. But it did cause some anxiety for several weeks before we ever sort of started the picture. Because the studio did want me to be blind in some way and uh, rather eager to either have me wear dark glasses or have a scar near an eye, you know, which worried me terribly. Because as I say, I'm not a sort of, I don't like the technique to show or even to be there. I also felt that this would draw attention to the fact that I'm not blind if you put makeup on somebody. So my hope was to do it from the inside out and to somehow convince the audience who knew that thank God Audrey Hepburn is not blind, but that I for some for a fleeting moment could create an illusion of blindness. And two marvelous things happened. One was I spent several weeks going every day to the lighthouse in New York, the institution for the blind. I was blindfolded and I learned what it meant technically to be blind, to go up and down in elevators, to find something you throw on the floor, to make a meal, to find things in a room. But then I had another extraordinary stroke of, of luck, I would say, but it was a blessing. I met a young girl who had in fact been blinded and in no time at all, I'm sorry that right this second I can't remember her name, I said, do something for me. Find your way around this room. And I sat on my chair and just watched her. She had beautiful eyes, dark, shiny eyes. There was no way of knowing that she couldn't see. And then when there were times that she didn't feel the part, she learned that she could use her appearance to look the part. Because as I didn't have this technique of being able to deal with the part in, you know, however way it was, it was often an enormous help to know that you looked the part. Then the rest wasn't so tough anymore. They say you do a period picture, whether it was worn piece, when you wear high waists and little curls and crinolines, or the nun story, when you wear a habit. Once you're in that habit of a nun, it's not that you become a saint. You walk differently, you feel something. And it's also true if you've got rustling taffeta and, and a fan or whatever it is, you walk differently, you sit differently, you've got all the stays. The, that is an enormous help. And when we continue more of the story of Audrey Hepburn and Roman Holiday here, on Our American Stories. Thank you. 
This is Our American Stories, and this is the last part of the story that we've been listening to, The Life of Audrey Hepburn. On this day in history, Roman Holiday was released in 1953. We pick up with Audrey talking about how to look the part when you don't always feel the part. And also in, in the modern day pictures, wearing Givenchy's, you know, lovely, simple clothes. If I was wearing a jazzy little red coat and, and whatever little hat was then the fashion, I felt super. Mm-hmm. And it gave me the feeling of whoever I was playing in charade or breakfast at Tiffany or, or being walking down those steps, stairs, for the first time, beautifully dressed in My Fair Lady. Now, actually, what you see is just a dress. How could you miss? The last time the audience saw you, you were grimy and couldn't speak properly and whatever it is. The scene is set up in a glorious way. The music, the the, the, the second that you don't see anybody. And around the staircase I come in this absolutely sublime white dress, which was a genuine one, by the way, which Cecil uh, Beaton had found. It was an antique made up, my hair dressed to kill, diamonds everywhere. All I had to do was walk down the stairs. She referenced the film My Fair Lady. Originally a stage show, My Fair Lady is the story of a young cockney flower seller named Eliza Doolittle. She overhears an arrogant phonetics professor, Henry Higgins, as he casually wagers that he could teach her how to speak proper English, thereby making her presentable in the high society of Edwardian London. Here is the scene of her first meeting with the professor. All right, Eliza, say it again. The rhyme in spine stays mainly in the plain. The rain in Spain stays mainly in the plain. Didn't I say that? No, Eliza, you didn't sigh that. You didn't even say that. Every night before you get into bed where you used to say your prayers, I want you to say the rain in Spain stays mainly in the plain 50 times. You get much further with the Lord if you learn not to offend his ears. Now for your H's. Come here, Eliza, and watch closely. Now. You see that flame. Every time you pronounce the letter H correctly, the flame will waver, and every time you drop your H, the flame will remain stationary. That's how you'll know if you've done it correctly. In time, your ear will hear the difference. See it better in the mirror. Now, listen carefully. In Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire, hurricanes hardly ever happen. Now, repeat that after me. In Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire, hurricanes hardly ever happen. In Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire, hurricanes hardly ever happen. Oh, no, 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 no. Have you no ear at all? Shall I do it over? No, please. For this role, Audrey was chosen over Julie Andrews, who had originated the role in the stage show. However, producer Jack Warner thought Audrey Hepburn more affordable, which caused quite a bit of upset especially when Hepburn did not end up singing in the film, something that presumably Julie Andrews would have done. This was a monster role, but Audrey was ready to take it on. However, she was devastated when they dubbed her singing in parts with the voiceover actress Marnie Dixon, and she did not receive Best Actress. Instead, Julie Andrews did for her screen debut in Mary Poppins. 
While this was greatly disappointing, Audrey's career was truly a great one. But did Audrey ever consider her fame a burden? Never a burden, and there isn't really a downside. Like in everything, there's, you know, you can find a, a problem. I think the only time it was a little hard for me was, I think when my second son was born, and I was at that time living in Rome, and I could take him nowhere, not to a park, not down the street, not put him on a terrace without paparazzi. And that was very difficult because there again, it wasn't me, he's bothering the child, you know, which really drove me mad. And as he began to be of an age, I could take him to the parks and everything because I lived in an apartment. To have photographers jump out from behind trees and he'd be in, she'd be howling from, because he was so startled and that was very difficult. But then again, a dear friend who has a beautiful garden in Rome told me, bring your child here with other children as often as you want. I'd love to have them in the garden. You'll make me happy. So again, I was very lucky. So these are the little difficult moments that I've had. I can think of no downside. Audrey Hepburn experienced a lot of sadness. An unfaithful spouse and the loss of children through miscarriages made life difficult. And for her, being a mother was all she ever wanted, even more so than her acting career. Perhaps it was because her father had deserted her family, and she desperately wanted a loving family of her own. At age 63 years old, Audrey Hepburn went to Somalia on behalf of UNICEF. She used her stardom, something that she had never done, to bring the message to the world that these children needed help. Unfortunately, her own health began to fade. She got sick in Somalia and had to come home to Switzerland. Everyone thought that she would get better. However, when she returned home in 1992, she began suffering from abdominal pain. She had cancer. And the cancer was already in its terminal state. Audrey Hepburn died on January 20th, 1993. Surrounded by her partner at the time, Robert Walden, and her two sons. When she died, columnist Rex Reed said that Audrey Hepburn was proof that God could still create perfection. Her humility was one to be noted. Perhaps that is why she was so well-loved. Every moment she had in her career, she was always incredibly amazed and grateful for such an opportunity. When Audrey won the Tony Award in 1954, she wanted to thank all the people who had helped and nurtured a totally insecure, inexperienced, and skinny broad. No one saw her like that. She once said, How shall I sum up my life? I think I have been particularly lucky. She passed while still doing good to others. Her poised and elegant disposition has left its mark in the acting world and for those who have seen her films. Yes, she was indeed beautiful, but there was so much more to her than her charm and cool composure. She left this earth evidencing her priorities to the world. But if I'm with UNICEF, therefore, 
if I'm concerned about children today, it's still the same thread, if you want to call it, or reason, or quality, which I spoke about before with directors, with actors, with people, is that, yes, I went through a war. Surely that's made me a little more aware that some people might not have what it means to be hungry, deprivation, and so forth. Never do I think of that when I see a child in Africa who's at death's door. But what I've always had, and maybe that I was born with, was an enormous love of people, children. I loved them when I was little. I used to embarrass my mother by trying to pick babies out of prams, you know, that kind of thing. The one thing I dreamed of in my life was to have children of my own. It always boils down to the same thing of not only receiving love, but wanting desperately to give it, enormous need to give it. It is true that I had an extraordinary mother. She herself was not a very affectionate person in the sense that I today consider affection. I spent a lot of time looking for it and I found it. She was a fabulous mother, but she came from an era, she was born in 1900, Victorian influence still, of great discipline, of great ethics, lot of love within her, not always able to show it. I'm very strict. I went searching all over the place to find somebody who would cuddle me, you know, and I found it in my aunts, in my friends. That is something that has stayed very strong. Maybe it's my nature. I don't know, maybe with a different mother, it would still be the same. And out of that comes enormous concern. And that is the reason for which I could not possibly refuse to help a child if I can. Now I've got to be careful how I sound. I have an enormous love for humanity and the human qualities in people when they come out. That is perhaps what has come through off the screen. Great job as always, Faith. And it's always good to hear the voices from these folks and what a delight to hear Audrey Hepburn herself talking about her life. On this day in history, Roman Holiday was released in 1953, and we're celebrating that release thanks to Hillsdale College, also celebrating the life of Audrey Hepburn. And if you get a chance, watch Roman Holiday, and while you're at it, watch My Fair Lady. These are beautiful films. A family can watch them. This is high art and cinema combined, and pop art too, understandable to 10-year-olds, 5-year-olds, and 80-year-olds. It's just a delight. Audrey Hepburn's story, Roman Holiday's story, here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 